I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. I'm Andrew Falkowski, an undergraduate material science and engineering, and this month I am not joined by my co-host, Taylor Sparks. Taylor looked at the ratings in Mongolia and noticed that we are still not over 200 listeners, and he was irate. Where is he, Jared? So, he actually is doing an outreach mission right now in Mongolia. He's walking around, blasting the podcast on speakers, trying to get listeners. So, if you see him, snap a photo. And subscribe. Oh, yeah, Jared's here, too. Oh, yeah, I, I'm also here. I, you know, do the social media and everything like that. Jared, what do you, what do you, what's your background? For those who have been wondering for the past five months, how did they meet? I am a mechanical engineering major, and I took uh, Dr. Sparks' class, and Andrew was sadly my TA, and sadly. we've known each other ever since. Sadly. All right, we don't need to get into that. Today's episode was originally a micro-materialism episode, but due to um, Sparks' rapid, fast, un- unannounced disappearance to Mongolia, uh, it was transformed, elevated to a full episode, and it's a little bit different. Now, originally, it was focusing a lot more on material supply, and as such, when it was elevated, you know, there isn't as much technical stuff here, but it's no less interesting, and it gives a lot of context to where materials come from and the importance of securing them. Bear with us on this podcast. It is very hot, there is no air conditioning in the shed, and though the door is open, we are getting a nice serenade of birdsong and kids yelling. So we really hope this puts you in the learning mood today. Yeah, it, just ignore the human screams. Yeah, now sit back and enjoy a nice cold drink. Jared's got a nice cold beverage going. He's in it for the long haul. Now, as you've been wondering, what is today's episode about? It's about rubber, specifically natural rubber and vulcanization. Now, we're all somewhat familiar with the properties of rubber, right? It's elastic, strong and tough. It's impermeable to water and air. It's electrically insulating and has a lot of other interesting properties and applications. We use it in our everyday lives all the time. And a lot of that's vulcanized rubber. But before we get into that, actually a lot of it's synthetic rubber. But before we get into that, we need to talk about how we even get natural rubber in the first place. So where does natural rubber come from? It starts by harvesting a latex from rubber trees. Now the rubber tree's scientific name is Havea brasiliensis. I know I butchered that, but... Pay attention to that name, because it's going to come up and be pretty important later. It has Brazil in it. Now, the latex is a milky colloid consisting of polyisoprene and water. But what is polyisoprene, right? It's a special kind of polymer known as an elastomer. It means it's stretchy, and it's made from isoprene monomer units. Now, it's kind of hard to describe what these look like. If you're interested, Google it. But an elastomer, elastomer chains are randomly coiled and loosely cross-linked. Essentially, they prefer to maintain a high entropy, so that all the polymer strands want to be all clumped and mixed together, like a plate of spaghetti. And when they're stretched, they'll unwind and tighten and line up and begin to look a little more crystalline. However, when that force stretching them is released, they're going to want to return to that high entropy state, so they coil up again. 
Now, how do we actually get this out of the tree? So this milky colloid, this latex, is collected by making incisions in the rubber tree. These incisions take the form of spiral panels that wrap about halfway around the tree. Now, this creates a small trough of sorts at the bottom for maximizing collection. So it comes down the spiral, and they can just put a collection bin at that bottom of that spiral. Now, these slanting cuts are also beneficial because when you cut into these rubber trees, it actually causes them to produce more latex. And by using this fashion, it not only allows you to collect more, but it also prevents you from doing too much harm to the tree. You don't want to kill it. You just want to collect its nutrients, its, its valuable resources. That's a pretty complex technique. When did they start doing this, Andrew? It actually dates back thousands of years. Now, rubber makers in ancient Mesoamerica, 3,500 years ahead of when vulcanized rubber was even invented, right? The ancient Mayan people used latex to make rubber balls, and which were used in an important ritual game. This game was called, I'm sorry everyone for my pronunciation here, Tlik Tlik, a cross between football and basketball, but it had religious significance. So, Jared, you've been to one of these sites. You you played the game, is that right? Well, I definitely did not uh, play the game because no one really knows how the game was played per se because it evolved a lot throughout the years. And so while we know how some of the more recent ones have been played, say in the past five, 600 years, we're not exactly sure if that's how it was played in the BC era. But one of the most interesting, it seems to be a misconception at least, is that they would sacrifice players there. However, there definitely was some ritual sacrifice going on at the games, so it's not a sport that we play today for obvious reasons. But at Chichen Itza, which is one of uh, the seven wonders of the world, they do still have part of the court and the hoops, so you can go there and kind of get a feel for what it's like. And they have actually some of the rubber balls that have sort of survived to this day. Some of the balls actually date back to 1600 BC, which is incredibly old and crazy to see how long the rubbers lasted. One of the most interesting things about this is, though, is that when the Spanish landed to start their, you know, conquering of Mesoamerica, they saw them playing this game, and they had never really seen a game like this, but most of all, they had never seen rubber. And they were so intrigued by the game that they actually took two of the teams to Spain to show Charles V, who was the king at the time, what the game was and how it was played. Super cool. It must have been really interesting for them to see material that could bounce and react in that way. Especially since, like you said, it's not native. It's not native, no, no. Those trees were only really in that region, but it's actually, there's there's other ways of actually getting this latex. Um, You can get them from the Landolfia vines in tropical Africa. You can also get it from dandelion milk. But, you know, compare the relative sizes of these plants. You're not going to be able to get enough from those small vines or dandelions compared to a tree. So it really was region-locked at this time. Okay, once we have this latex, what do we do with it, right? That's not what the rubber really is supposed to look like. We need to condense it somehow. We need to coagulate it. What they'll do is they'll add formic acid to the latex to cause the polyisoprene to coagulate into a larger solid. This process takes about 12 hours. Now, the reason they do this is that the surfaces of the latex particles are charged, which creates forces of repulsion between them that keep them from coagulating, wanting to come together. In the coagulation process, formic acid neutralizes these charges, thereby limiting these forces of repulsion between the particles, allowing them to come together. Now, these coagulated sheets are then rolled to remove all that excess water and hung out to dry. 
This takes several days depending on the approach, and they depending on how they cook it or what sort of smoke they induce into it, it can kind of change its properties a little bit too. So there's a couple different approaches that they would take. They have the ribbed smoke sheet, so they dry these over wooden racks and smokehouses. You actually got lower quality. The smoke would get in there and create impurities, and it wouldn't be as good as rubber. And then you had the air-dried sheet. This is just rubber being dried with hot air. Higher quality, but it took longer. After it's dried, the rubber is shredded and then pressed into these large bales and shipped for further processing. This is where they'll add various additives, do shaping, the stuff that you're more likely to see. Okay, now we're familiar with how we get natural rubber from trees, but how do we get it to vulcanized rubber? What's the process look like for that? And why did we need it in the first place? The thing is, natural rubber is soft and just wouldn't make a good tire. Along with a lot of other products, you need a way to harden it and make it more resistant to temperature changes. Without vulcanization, rubber remains sticky when hot and brittle when cold, and it would rot a lot more quickly. This flaw hadn't been obvious in temperate Ecuador, where native people had been fashioning boots and balls and stuff from them for some time, uh, because the temperature changes weren't as dramatic. Uh, but once you bring it to the England and other parts of the world, then you have a serious problem. In fact, a number of factories that had been set up with lots of money going in for investment were on the brink of death, pretty much, right? These rubber barons who had invested tons of money into the material needed to find a solution. And it wasn't until the mid-1800s that a solution arrived. Now, a lot of you might be familiar with Charles A. Goodyear. He became interested in rubber when his father's hardware store went out of business, where he had been working previously. In 1834, Goodyear's walking down the street. He sees some products from the Roxbury India Rubber Company and they're manufacturing rubber life vests. He sees their valve system and thinks that he can make it better. So he goes home and works on that and is able to improve the valve system. But when he goes back and tries to show it to them, the manager who was in charge of the product was told him basically, you know, you should have made a better use for rubber. That's the problem. It's not the valve system. We can't get this rubber to work properly. After seeing this, Goodyear actually enters into a five-year-long obsession with trying to improve the properties of rubber, and it almost ruins him. He starts out by getting this contract to try and make rubber mailbags for mailmen because the current ones they had weren't working out, but he kept struggling to actually get them to not just turn into a sticky mush uh, in the hot sun. And so throughout this long process of trying to harden rubber, he plunges his family into debt in order to try to finance his experiments and pay his debts. At one point, he's reduced to making experimental rubber in his wife's kitchen, and later he continues doing it in debtor's prison where he actually spent a significant amount of his time. He didn't have access to safety equipment, and so he's breathing in toxic compounds, nitric acid, lime, turpentine. And it got to the point where he even sold his children's school books in order to try to pay back his debtors. Now, the dedication and courage here is admirable. One, someone told me once that if you want to do something really great, no matter what field you're in, you have to become a fanatic. You have to become fanatical about the subject that you're studying. And I think... Goodyear here really demonstrates that. He was willing to put it all on the line, invest every atom of his being into this project. And, you know, there's, there isn't a lot of glory in that. It comes at a heavy cost. Eventually, in 1839, in Woburn, Massachusetts, he's working at the Eagle India Rubber Company, and Goodyear, by accident, combines rubber and sulfur upon a hot stove. And much to his surprise, the rubber didn't melt. And when he raised the heat, it actually hardened. He spent several years perfecting this composition, before he patented it in 1844. He called it vulcanization after the Roman god of fire. Now, there is a 
point of contention here that I found it. I was researching. It clears up, but actually eight weeks before Charles Goodyear uh, filed his U.S. patent, another inventor named Thomas Hancock in England took out a patent for vulcanization of rubber using sulfur, and this was eight weeks prior to Charles Goodyear's patent. Now, you should note that it was several years after he discovered it that he actually patented it, so his samples were out there, and it was somewhat known. Now, what ended up actually happening was that Thomas Hancock, through a friend, was able to get a hold of some of Goodyear's samples, and by analyzing them, helped him understand it as well. And really, the driving force in Hancock's interest in this was because he was making rubber coats in England, and he was having the same problems. When it got cold, they just became super brittle, and when it was hot, they would melt and become sticky. And so that's what really drove him to be interested in this. Look, a lot of confusion around it, but Goodyear, in terms of these scientific discoveries, is credited with it. Okay, so what does he get for his patent? After all this hardship, what does he get? He establishes the Naugatuck India Rubber Company in Naugatuck, Connecticut, but even his success was short-lived. He spent much of his fortune that he earned from his patent fighting other patent infringements in the courts of the United States and abroad. He died at 59 in 1860, $200,000 in debt. Now, it's not clear whether that's $200,000 in our money or in 1860 money. If it was in 1860 money, how much would that be worth, Jared? If that was in 1860 money, that would be $6.212 million in debt. Jeez. Look, fanaticism, invention, it's not always glorious. Sometimes it comes at costs, but... Sometimes $6.2 million worth of costs. Some costs. Yeah, his kids are probably... Well, think about his kid. You know, <laughs> he had 12 children. Six of them died. It's awful and highly likely that many of them died because he brought his family into complete poverty in the effort to do this. But after he died, the Goodyear Tie and Rubber Company, founded in Akron, Ohio, 1898 was named in his honor. His name lives on, on a blimp. Not just any blimp. The blimp. The blimp. So Goodyear went through all this trouble for vulcanization, but how does it work? So vulcanization hardens the rubber by cross-linking polymer chains, right? You have to heat it to 160C before you add the sulfur. Now, what does this cross-linking do? Think about spaghetti. When it's not all connected to one another, you can kind of just pull it apart. However, imagine if all those noodles were connected by strands, by a lot of strands. It'd be much harder to pull apart. It becomes stiffer, right? That's kind of what's happening to the rubber. To get into the nitty-gritty of it, along these isoprene polymer chains, you have reactive sites, cure sites, and these are allylic hydrogen atoms. So essentially, you have carbon and hydrogen bonds that are adjacent to a carbon-carbon double bond. Okay. What that means is that there's the potential for free electrons for bonding. So during vulcanization, some of these carbon-hydrogen bonds are replaced by chains of sulfur atoms that link with a cure site on another polymer chain. So it's like a bridge between these two chains. Now, these bridges contain between one and several sulfur atoms, and the number of sulfur atoms actually strongly influences the physical properties of the final rubber material. So a shorter cross-link will make the rubber better at heat resistance. Longer cross-links will give the rubber better dynamic properties, but less heat resistance. Dynamic properties are important for flexing movements of the rubber articles. So, for instance, the movement of a sidewall on a rubber tire. Without good flexing properties, these movements would rapidly form cracks and ultimately make the rubber article fail. Right? So you want it to cross-link it to make it harder, but you don't want to cross-link it so much that it becomes brittle. You want to retain some of those elastic properties of rubber. 
these days, they don't just use sulfur. They often add a lot of different compounds, right? They ship them in actually these things called cure packages, and these will contain things like carbon black. Uh, what is that, Jared? Carbon black is a byproduct of incomplete combustion of coal tar. Thanks, Jared. And when you add that, it increases your tensile strength, your tear and abrasion resistance. They'll also add various silica compounds, and these are often used to provide additional reinforcement. Essentially, these cure packages include a lot of different materials to help control the kinetics of the cross-linking, and they tailor it to the various applications. So the vulcanized rubber that's used to seal something, is, or a hose, is going to be different than the vulcanized rubber in a tire, right? We're going to take a quick little break and go to a word from our sponsors, and then when we come back, we'll continue this discussion. The Materialism Podcast is sponsored by MatMatch.com. MatMatch is a great online platform that connects materials suppliers and consumers. If you're looking for a material and you don't know its properties or where to get it, MatMatch is a great place that combines lots of different materials suppliers and what they offer and allows you to compare. For instance, if you're looking for natural rubber, you don't have to go through and dig through a bunch of articles to try to find the properties, right? You can see the natural rubber options that they offer and they'll tell you all about the different properties, the purity, uh, the mechanical properties of that, so that you can see if that material is going to fit best for your desired application. Best of all, MatMatch is free to use, so keep it in mind for your next engineering project. The Materialism Podcast is also sponsored by Materials Today. Visit materialstoday.com or elsevier.com to find out more about the journals, books, conferences, and related programs. Already, we're back from the break, and we're going to dive into a little bit more about synthetic rubbers and the necessity of control of rubber supply around the world. A quick note on synthetic rubbers. Unfortunately, we don't have time to cover all of them, but so synthetic rubbers weren't really sought after until about World War I. British blockades had prevented Germany from accessing rubber shipments from South America, um, and so they needed some sort of replacement, rubbers and everything, right? And so they started trying to develop synthetic rubbers, and initially they were inferior. But today, most of the rubber that we interact with, 75% actually, is these synthetic rubbers, and these are petroleum byproducts, and they have a lot of other different additives and chemical structures that give them very unique, specialized properties. Those are kind of outside the scope of this episode, but they do exist, and they were in response to a shortage of demand, which is kind of our next topic. You can see why it's a valuable resource, and if it's only dependent on being in certain regions of the world, you'd also see why that could be a potential problem, right? Now, if we look at today, remember the name I told you about in the beginning, right? Brasiliensis, right? It, it comes from Brazil, and that's where a lot of these were. They were distributed sporadically throughout the rainforest. But as it became more important and a necessity, you know, being used in car tires and valves and hoses, production needed to increase. And so... At some point, it became non-viable to be making it in Brazil, in the Amazon. And so if you look at where our top three producers of natural rubber are today, Thailand, Indonesia, and Vietnam, like 90% of our rubber comes from that. Why is that? Why the shift? So there's several factors responsible. 
First, in Brazil, there was this desire to not shift to a plantation setup for harvesting these trees, which is how they are harvested today. The reason for this was that because of how far how spread out a lot of these rubber trees were, they had to send people into the Amazon to collect them. But this also served as a means of them reestablishing and reaffirming their territory within the Amazon rainforest. So there was a desire not to shift to a plantation so they could still send envoys to scout that area and maintain a presence there. There was also a lot of diseases that prevented that. You know, actually, Henry Ford was involved in trying to create a proper plantation in Brazil to secure a source of rubber in the 1920s. But unfortunately, South American leaf blight fungus wiped out all the possibility of packed together plantation style rubber tree growth. This isn't a problem in Asia, and that's why it dominated. But let's talk about, you know, why this happened. So why would Ford be so interested in Brazil, right? If our markets are, if our, our rubber is coming from Asia, why is that necessarily a problem? Well, at the time, there was an attempt to keep up with Asian competition because if they controlled the resource, then they could easily cut it off and it'd be disastrous. And so the idea was that Ford was going to create this massive, almost a town in the middle of the Amazon rainforest called Fordlandia. And it was established in about 1928, and it was pretty much a prefabricated industrial town intended to be inhabited by 10,000 people to secure a source of cultivated rubber for his automotive manufacturing. Now, this plantation was massive, 10,000 square kilometers, or in Imperial, uh, 3,900 square miles. Now, this wasn't just, you know, a couple houses and then a large farm area. This was a full-size town. It had a power plant, a modern hospital, a library, a golf course, a hotel, and these rows of clapboard houses with wicker patio furniture, you can look up what Fordlandia looks like. It looks like a full town. Now it's abandoned because the project didn't work because of this leaf blight, but there was a real desire to secure a source for these materials. And it became evident when World War II rolled around that this was still important. Synthetic rubbers hadn't really caught up yet and weren't able to be manufactured at the scale necessary. And so what ended up happening was... Japan had captured a lot of the principal rubber-producing areas in Asia. They threatened to cut these off, and at the time, this was 90% of the natural rubber supply for the whole world, right? This is a big problem. We use this in all of our transportation, all their military, all these appliances and machinery that require this in order to run and function properly. So this became a big problem for the United States, right? And so in response to this, they started trying to create insurances and other ways of getting rubber. They invested in plantations in Africa. There's actually a, a really big one in Liberia that's operated by the Firestone Rubber Corporation. It's a little too political for this podcast, but if you're interested in that sort of thing, you might want to look that up. At the same time, they also developed a lot of initiatives and investment and funding for synthetic substitutes, and they also established a lot of guidelines internationally for controlling the quality of rubber, the allocations of rubber. Right? It was so, such a scarce resource that they had to operate on a worldwide perspective of how they could manage the supplies of rubber and prevent misuse and overuse in such a critical wartime. So we've told you about the history, and we've told you about some of the properties it has, but you may be thinking, what do we use rubber for? <laughs> do we even use it? Jared, you're a very fashionable person. Every time I see you, you have a unique outfit on. Right, is, You're conscious. This is true, I conscious do. Conscious of your style. Now, when it comes to footwear... Oh, there's a there's a shoe that you wear that has to, a lot to do with vulcanized rubber. The Converse Rubber Shoe Company, or as of course we know them today, Converse, was one of the first really major companies to introduce rubber. Of course, people have tried it before. Notably, actually, the Goodyear Tire Company was looking into it. But what really 
made the big deal was when Converse introduced what they call the non-skids. And because the Vulcanized was so tough, but also grippy, it helped basketball players stay on the court. And this is like the early, you know, 1917, 1918. And that shoe is rocketed to stardom, as we all know today, the All-Stars. Right, it's become a fashion icon. Now, they've tried shoes in the past with just regular rubber, but they would just melt or become too brittle. It was the, really the vulcanization that allowed them to take it to the next level. Alrighty, we're so happy that you stuck around for this episode. We hope you enjoyed listening. We had a lot of fun putting it together, and I think we offered a unique and interesting perspective. Where your materials come from is just as important as the materials themselves. Some materials are just so valuable that we really need to take steps to secure them and make sure that they are available and not misused. Hopefully, by next episode, Taylor will be back from his um, his outreach program in Mongolia. Uh, he hasn't responded to our emails, so we, we don't know, but... Hopefully next episode. Look forward to it. Look forward to it. As always, if you liked this episode and you like this Andrew and Jared style, send us an email and let us know at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you like about the show. Let us know what you don't like and what we can improve and do better. You can also reach out to us on Instagram at materialism.podcast. We actually post a lot of graphics that kind of help explain some of the topics we're going through on there. So you should definitely check that out. Um, you can also visit our brand new website, materialismpodcast.com, and let us know how you like the design. I have some artwork on there as well. A big thanks to Alphabot for allowing us to use his music within the podcast. You can see him on Spotify. And a big thanks to Colabite, who does the intro and outro for the podcast. We will check you next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.